we managed to secure permission for the much more difficult <laughs> northern coast, which is between Miami and Cuba. It was much rougher um, and ended up actually resulting in a really historic find. It was only the second time, I think, that a, a long fin mako had been filmed. Um, and I believe the first time it had been tagged to chart its behavior. But we didn't really know what we were going to find. It was an expedition, you know, to sort of answer that question. Could other great whites be here or, or how healthy are sharks? I mean, the fact that we found abundance of shark, healthy shark populations, of course, healthy reefs, healthy sharks. You know, we got to tag a shark for the first time ever without using invasive procedures by actually grabbing the tail of this six foot plus reef shark turning its tail so that it sort of falls asleep sort of it's called tonic immobility and so it kind of puts it into like this stupor and they prepped it in quite rough seas prepped the shark held it like a baby in their arms and then applied a tag and a second that tag went in the fin the stupor had worn off let's put it that way so and i was on the, actually the front end of that so i got the full smile of the shark as it took off but it was pretty wild and it took multiple attempts to do it Welcome to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. I'm your host, Kenna Klosterman, bringing you true stories from behind the lens and behind the lives of your favorite photographers, filmmakers, and creative industry game changers. From their struggles to their wins, we get the real human stories about why they do what they do. I believe there is something to learn from everyone's story. Listen, get inspired, and discover why in the end, your creative journey is all worth it. Ian Shive is an award-winning filmmaker and photographer whose work documents some of the world's most pristine environments and brings to the public important conservation stories from around the globe. In 2015, he led a team of filmmakers and scientists on a groundbreaking mission in Cuba for Discovery Channel's Shark Week. And over the past few years, he's launched several expeditions to document for the first time some of the Pacific Ocean's most remote marine national monuments for two films, Midway, Edge of Tomorrow, and Hidden Pacific. Ian is the founder of Tandem Stills in Motion, a leading outdoor photography and film production company. He's also an educator here on Creative Live. In this episode, Ian takes us on an exploration from filming great white sharks in Cuba to albatross on Midway Island to the vibrant underwater life surrounding several protected atolls in the Pacific. In a time of extreme environmental threats to our planet, Ian explains why he's chosen to primarily focus on stories of hope. We go back to eight-year-old inquisitive Ian, who felt connected to nature from a very young age, and how the immersive experience of viewing Hidden Pacific in IMAX theaters will hopefully give youth across the world the same connection to nature. Hear about partnering with organizations such as the Nature Conservancy, the Sierra Club, the National Parks Conservation Association, and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and all about the latest inspiring work of Tandem Stills and Motion. This is We Are Photographers with Ian Shive, and this is his story. Ian Shive, such a pleasure to have you on We Are Photographers. Thank you so much for Skyping in from L.A. (laughs) It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. I am super excited about your most recent project, at least that's out in the world, Hidden Pacific. (laughs) And I want to just start off by talking about what it is, what the film is, and IMAX. 
I mean, that is yes. a huge thing to take on. And so literally first. Yeah, literally. So first of all, <laughs> tell us what the film is about. Well, the film Hidden Pacific is about these coral atolls that are in the most remote part of the Pacific Ocean. Um, they're a protected area. They're part of the Marine National Monuments. And it's interesting because a lot of folks um, know national parks. Uh, you may have heard about national monuments here in the United States. There's one that's been very contentious, which is called Bears Ears. Um, a lot of people are fighting for that because there's been proposals to downsize it and stuff. Um, so national monuments are known, national parks are known, but people don't realize we actually have five marine national monuments that are far from our everyday lives. Um, and only three of them have land masses that actually peak a little bit above the ocean. And when I say peak, I'm, I'm talking like, you know, six feet is the highest point on the island. Um, and they're, they're kind of small, to be honest with you. Um, and so this film is the first time anybody has had a chance to go out and, uh, and explore these and film them, let alone in the giant screen format. And so we look at these rare coral atolls and what is essentially the most pristine ecosystem in the Pacific. Uh, it's one of the most pristine ecosystems. When shark researchers are trying to figure out how healthy is Hawaii, they use these places, these islands we went to as, as the baseline to compare it against because there's really nowhere else that's been so protected by isolation, so protected by its designation, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, they're a little bit like going back in time. So uh, the film explores, explores those places. And so what is your – congratulations, by the way. Because, again, you. like huge <laughs> feat, huge accomplishment. How long Thanks. did it take to – create this film and tell me what it was like to be in one of the most pristine places on the planet yeah it's a, a good question how long did it take that that's tough um i certainly didn't realize how long it would take starting out on it so the the genesis of the film really came from work i was doing uh, with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So I had been asked to go to Midway Atoll and do a 10-minute film. And Midway is very famous from the Battle of Midway. And there was a 75th anniversary, a big World War II battle that, that took place in literally Midway across the Pacific Ocean. Um, and so I went there to produce a 10-minute film, produced it very high quality, and then realized, wow, this is pretty tremendous. And so I got to go to a bunch of other places, um, other different coral atolls to help bring those to the public um, because there are public lands and waters. Uh, people don't get to visit them. And so film and photography is a great way to visit them. Uh, lo and behold, upon returning, um, we always shoot very, very high quality. I mean, these days, you know, shooting IMAX quality or giant screen quality can be done, you know, with, with these digital cinema cameras that are um, expensive, but certainly much more ubiquitous than cinema cameras had traditionally been. And so we more or less had the format, we had the content, and we we're able to say, well, gee, wouldn't it be great to actually allow visitation in a completely immersive format? And how would that work? And I, I really wasn't sure that television was the right place for it. There's not really theatrical releases for films like these, other than on television these days. But there is the museum cinema place. Uh, and so we were able to uh, look at that opportunity. And um, I'd say from the first frame that was shot until the day it was released, it was a two and a half year, maybe a little bit more journey. Um, and the film will roll out over the course of a year. So we're in approximately 16 screens right now. 
Uh, we'll be in 35 more by the new year, another 50 by next summer. So um, it's it's like this journey that just <laughs> keeps going. Uh, I thought going uh, to the islands was a long way, and actually, it's it's a lot it's a lot longer actually producing the film. Um, so it, you know, all all said, from the time that the thing is finally out everywhere that it will go, it'll it'll be almost four years. Wow, um, which is a long time. It's a really long time. <laughs> it is, but yeah. with a, such an important project, I mean, that's that's yeah. what it takes. So it take, is. And, take, and you don't realize it either. I mean, sure. that's the thing. I mean, you're, you know, you're out filming. I mean, our film, our film process in the field was, you know, about six months on and off. Um, it was, it was a dream. Uh, to, and to answer your question about the pristine places, I mean, you know, our base camp was almost always in Honolulu, Hawaii. Um, you know, a lot of the islands you go to, uh, you know, you can be barefoot most of the day, bringing out your equipment cause you're on sandy beaches or jumping in, you know, 88 degree warm water. Um, you know, it, I would say the opportunity to see those places, though, is an absolute gift. I mean, an absolute gift. It's, it's, you know, you hear the word pristine used, but you don't really know what it means until you see it. The, the clarity and visibility of the water, um, to see a beach without footprints, without hotels, without lights, a shoreline and a coast as far as you can see without boats, a sky without airplanes, um, you know, uh, uh, 400 species of fish living on a reef that is very, uh, very healthy. Um, we didn't see very many signs of, of bleaching or things like that. Um, but it was, you know, it's a gift. I mean, there's so few places left in our connected world that you can go and have those kinds of opportunities. Um, and when you, uh, have that opportunity firsthand, it's, it's definitely special, but it was that uh, feeling and that experience that I really wanted to try and, and capture and bring to people and, you know, the film is also in 3D uh, in some venues if the venue is a 3D venue. And so, um, you know, to be able to that's the closest they're going to get to <laughs> short of, of going all the way around the world. So um, it, it's it's pretty special, but it's a, it's also a big responsibility. Can you contrast that pristineness to with all the conservation work that you've done to a time where you were in a very unpristine place? that has been destroyed. And I'm curious about sort of, was there a moment where it hit you that you wanted to not just make pretty outdoor pictures, but that conservation aspect of your work was necessary? Conservation has always been a uh, mentality that has evolved for me. Um, the more opportunities you have to see places that are special, unique, um, undoubtedly worth saving, uh, you recognize, um, a constant change in urgency to feel like you should protect them. Um, you know, what's interesting is we, we do use the word pristine, but it's something that should be used cautiously, even when describing these atolls, because they are still threatened by rising temperatures, ocean acidification. And then, uh, the big issue that everyone's uh, very aware of these days, it seems like I'm talking about are plastics. And so, um, you know, a place uh, like Midway Atoll, for instance, is, is famous because the uh, Laysan albatross, of which I think 70% nest on Midway, um, are, um, you know, decaying away. They're just filled with toys and whole chunks of plastic and so on. Um, so these pristine environments are as pristine as we get. So it's like pristine asterisk, <laughs> you read the fine print and the footnote. 
Um, it's the best we can get without certain impacts, but our impacts still float to them. And so Midway, um, you know, was a real eye opener because here's this remote island, no permanent uh, residents, um, and it's, uh, you know, the beaches are just filled with uh, toys, even from my childhood, washing up on the beach. Um, you know, things from like, you know, animation and cartoon series is haven't been around in 20 years are washing up looking like they did when I was uh, eight years old. And so, you you know, at, even on this project, um, you know, I, I, I saw uh, the value of conservation for even remote atolls. Midway really is in a is in the, the, the sweet spot um, for getting whacked by currents that carry a lot of our garbage. Um, where the other islands, you know, Palmyra definitely gets it, but not nearly as bad. Um, and then way south, we went to Rose Atoll, which is 100 and yeah, I think 185 miles east of American Samoa. So it's uh, our only uh, protected area in the United States that's south of the uh, in the southern hemisphere. Um, and that island, uh, we were is only 16 acres around, uh, so it's not a big island. Um, but we could walk around uh, and clean up all the plastic on the beach uh, with one bag. Um, on that visit. And, uh, you know, nobody had done that in, you know, six months or something like that on the last science trip that went out there. So you know, the impacts vary. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you, inevitably you see them, you see nets, you see glass bottles, um, you see just a tremendous amount of, of plastic. So, uh, even on this trip, you know, it's, there's no such thing truly as pristine anymore. So you, you mentioned eight year old Ian, uh, let's go back to eight-year-old Ian. Were you always sort of adventurous and um, playing in the outdoors, or you know, how did tell tell me about what you were like as a child? Oh. Where where it relates to both photography and creativity and the outdoors. Well, you're currently speaking to eight-year-old Ian, as most people in my office would testify to. But, uh, you know, I don't think I've probably changed all that much. I'm sure there's a whole room full of people behind me nodding their heads. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, I think that spirit has always lived for me. It lived in me, certainly. Um, you know, but I think, you know, I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, you know, I didn't grow up with, you know, a national park in my backyard, so to speak. Um, you know, I grew up in a very, uh, you know, I'd say urban environment, um, you know, and for me, the outdoors were, uh, you know, butterflies and things that would fly past, you know, maybe you'd get lucky and the occasional hawk or owl would land in a tree. And, um, but my parents were big advocates of, uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of television, no video games, a lot of outdoor time. I mean, all of our time was spent uh, going to a park, uh, looking at ducks, you know, maybe taking day trips to a place in the mountains. And when fall came, you know, going and playing around in the leaves. Um, and that grew. And, you know, it's that idea, actually, that has been uh, has been something I've always remembered, because those small first steps, those small first experiences. <clears throat> um, and there was actually a television show like a like a, you know, public broadcasting type of show on nature that we would always watch every Sunday that would come on for an hour and I would actually get to see, you know, a, a, a bobcat chase a rabbit or something like that. Um, and that was pretty, that was pretty mesmerizing. Um, but you know, that grew into this today. And so when bringing a film or, you know, at first my photography, um, and, 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 and this opinion is, is, is also evolved. Um, this idea that, that I'm about to share, uh, has evolved into what it is today, but you know, it, it is that first connection. Um, and especially today now with digital devices and social media and, 
Um, you know, my hope is that the immersive theater environment, the films, um, my photography, wherever it may be, will be that first connection uh, in, in a similar way or support that first connection. Nothing beats being outdoors. But in the digital age, I think there is a really tremendous opportunity for the next generation of eight-year-olds to be wowed and mesmerized, um, which is a huge part of uh, the type of films, the type of photography that I make. I want them to be about hope and inspiration and not about uh, the fear and the challenges. There's a lot of that out there. There's a plenty of information and abundance of, of here's all the problems that we have. And I think that we almost are running into a shortage of here's all the reasons why we should care. Um, and so, I, you know, my, my goal has been and continues to be, um, and I think that my uh, role, I believe, will continue to evolve as a way to help connect people with the reasons why they should care. So I want to go to another pristine place, and that is Cuba. You ah, created yes. <laughs> uh, the dis uh, for Discovery's Shark Week a, a film there with these giant monster sharks. So, <laughs> uh, it, first, tell me about the location, and because people are probably sure. surprised that there is a protected area there, <laughs> and then uh, tell me about a scary moment with a shark. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. Uh, Cuba, yeah, wow. Cuba, Cuba was was amazing. Um, an absolutely beautiful country. I actually first went as part of a uh, as part of an environmental nonprofit expedition to just kind of do the recon on um, on what it is and uh, and, and what's there. Um, what's interesting about Cuba is that it's um, it's probably has the most amount of protection of any place in. Uh, almost in the world, I believe it's one of the highest. I think it's almost 25% of the country is actually under conservation protections, and so there's a um, you know an, an interesting thing that kind of comes with that. The other thing that I think that's really fascinating is that uh, the government has um, you know not uh, evolved in the way as the as the rest of the world has, and therefore there were not a lot of like uh, bottom trawlers and pesticides and all of the other things that get used in uh, modern agriculture and uh, fishing industries. And so the impacts on the environment have also been less. So there's been sort of, um, you know, it's, you know, and it, without getting into the politics, of course, and there's plenty of them to go with it, um, you know, there's an interesting sort of uh, aspect of the lack of, uh, um, or, or, or rather, I would say almost uh, a different kind of isolation. You know, Hidden Pacific, the, the islands are isolated by their uh, remoteness, and Cuba has been isolated by its uh, politics. And that uh, isolation has really resulted in um, a lot of uh, benefits for uh, for the environment, um, you know. And, and and it's my understanding that uh, you know, longtime leader Fidel Castro um, was a passionate uh, diver. I was really into scuba, um, and so I think that uh, you know it resulted in in having a lot of protected areas. Um, Cuba is really, I think, the last stronghold of the Caribbean. Uh, the coral that we saw there, um, and, and, I'll, and I'll talk about where we went. I mean, that, speaking of years, I got to start picking, up, picking projects that don't take many years to make. But that one also took two and a half to three years or so to put together because we went before Cuba was, uh, was opened um, by Obama. And so, you know, there was that window of time where the country was opening and reconnecting. Um, and so we had gone through a very lengthy uh, permit process with the Treasury Department, with the Cuban government um, to go uh, with permission and conduct a, a, 
uh, a, a fully sanctioned um, uh, film, commercial film. It was actually the first commercial television show, I believe, in 70 years that had been made in the country. Yeah, that is no um, small feat as somebody who's <laughs> been to Cuba 11 times. Uh, that's no small feat. <laughs> It's not. And thank you for recognizing it. I mean, it, it was the lots of meetings, State Department, uh, you know, Mundo Latino, which is the local uh, or national television station. It was very supportive, very passionate about the environment. Um, you know, that was the thing that I found, too, is that the people were very passionate about the environment, um, you know, highly educated, um, you know, just really interested in animal behavior and very um, had a very good understanding uh, within the constraints of their technology a very good understanding of what their environment was about and what it offered. Um, and so we went down and, and filmed along the south coast uh, in a place called Gardens of the Queen, which is, um, it, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's like uh, the southwest corner of Cuba or so. You kind of have to go across the country, which is a great experience. Um, and then we got on a boat. We went in there. We went a bunch of a lot of other areas as well along the south coast in the mangroves and uh, just some really special spots. Um, and then as well, uh, we managed to secure permission for the uh, much more difficult <laughs> uh, northern coast, which is between Miami and Cuba. Um, it was much rougher um, and ended up actually resulting in, in a really uh, historic find. It was only the second time, I think, that a, a long fin mako had been filmed. Um, and I believe the second or first time one had been tagged. I can't recall off the top of my head. I think it was maybe the second time one had ever. I think it was, might have been the first time it had been tagged. Um, to chart its behavior. And so, um, you know, it was, it was a worthwhile thing, but we didn't really know what we were going to find. It was an expedition, you know, to, to sort of answer that question. You know, there were some old black and white photos of, a you know, guy over Carnero who had seen, uh, you know, a great white pulled up when he was eight years old, by the way, uh, speaking of being eight. And, um, he, he was the kid sitting on the head of the shark in this old black and white photo. So we tracked him down using my, uh, you know, earlier journalistic roots and tracked him down now, um, you know, 80 years old, I think he was at the time or so, and interviewed him about that day, which nobody had done. Um, and he remembered it crystal clear um, and how his father had been one of the guys who hauled this great white shark up. And it was um, uh, allegedly the largest great white shark ever recorded. Um, so this trip was to, and they, they named it El Monstro. So perfect for Shark Week. Uh, and so um, this trip was to go and say, well, could other great whites be here or, or how healthy are sharks? I mean, the fact that the largest one is found, then we've got to be in a place that sharks really like it. And we found shark nurseries. We found abundance of shark, um, healthy shark populations, of course, healthy reefs, healthy sharks. Those two are um, very much tied together. And, uh, you know, we got to tag a shark for the first time ever without using invasive procedures by actually grabbing the tail of this six foot plus, uh, reef shark, um, turning its tail so that it sort of, uh, falls in, uh, falls asleep sort of, it's called tonic, uh, immobility. And so it kind of puts it into like this like stupor and, um, they prepped it in quite rough seas, kind of prepped the shark, held it like a, like a baby in their arms, um, you know, quite a large toothy baby and, uh, and then applied a tag and a second that tag went in the fin, uh, the stupor had worn off. Let's put it that way. So, and I was on the, actually the front end of that. So I got the, I got the full smile of the shark, um, as it took off, but you know, it, it was pretty wild and it took multiple attempts, multiple attempts to do it. So, so that's kind of like an overview of that, of that project. Um, but you know, it's, it's interesting cause it's, it's, there's a lot of uh, question marks about the future 
of uh, the marine habitats uh, in Cuba, but it is really the best of the Caribbean in many ways. So yet again, another great gift to, to have that opportunity to, to see that. I'm kind of jaded. I, I think the whole world is just beautiful because I keep going all the best places. <laughs> okay, so you're underwater and you presumably have a camera you're documenting yes. this shark being held like a baby and tagged mm-hmm. you said smile <laughs> uh, but i mean what is that what does that feel like for you take like take me to that experience and uh, was there fear you're hoping your camera and the case that it's in are uh, strong enough <laughs> to be that shield i in a way i've almost always sort of subconsciously use the camera as a barrier for those things that might otherwise make you a little bit afraid. And, uh, you know, some, some, there's something about looking through that viewfinder that makes it less real in the moment, I guess, to a degree. Um, it, you know, and it, so that's always been kind of interesting, especially some like really sketchy, small airplane flights I've done, like aerials in Alaska and stuff like that, where I'm like, well, you know, it seems a lot less bumpy if I'm looking through my viewfinder on the camera. So, uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's different. It's definitely different. You know, I mean, getting in the water with, you know, I think at one point we had 20 sharks around us circling, um, you know, light was getting low, it was a little bit murky. Uh, you know, it was, uh, you, you definitely feel like you're part of a primordial food chain for sure. But, you know, I think, I think we're also getting to the point where we recognize, you know, they don't really, sharks don't want them bite us. They don't really know what we are. They kind of come check things out. Most bites are accidental. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, we've, we've got to learn to coexist even, even with these, with these creatures that, um, you know, could easily tear us apart. Well, (laughs) it's, it's their habitat. I mean, it's like, it's like being on safari where Mm -hmm. I feel like, you, you have this revelation that you're like, I am not in the human kingdom. I am in the animal kingdom. That's and it. And so you are in the shark kingdom. Sharks are doing what sharks do. They bite. Yeah. Well, they, yeah. they, they, you know? they live. They do their thing. You know, they're not sketching out, uh, you know, animations and stories and writing books when we're not around. I mean, they're swimming around looking for something to bite. <laughs> That's what sharks do. <laughs> and you're in their world. That's right. So. Yeah. So you you alluded to a, a a journalism and background, and cl- mm. clearly you're a storyteller, whether it's stills or or film. So mm-hmm. how did you start telling stories? Yeah, it's a, it's a great distinction. I mean, I don't really almost care so much about the medium as long as I have an opportunity to tell stories. Um, you know, I still love and I'm passionate about still photography. I still take pictures almost every day. Um, you know, I have personal projects I'm always working on. So stills and motion are really just two different ways to be a storyteller. Um, you know, my, uh, my upbringing definitely had a large role in it. Um, you know, my father's a photographer, uh, started in classic rock and roll photography, um, which, uh, you know, when I came around, um, and let's say, you know, mid eighties being in the classic rock and roll scene as a six year old, not the best thing. So, my, uh, my dad transitioned into um, doing a lot of storytelling, so to speak. Uh, uh, did architectural photographer, but shot a lot for newspapers. And I used to go a lot on those newspaper shoots. So, you know, work in New Jersey, going out and, you know, whether it was photographing a, a fire or, you know, a portrait of somebody or, you know, the governor landing, uh, you know, for a special event. Um, you know, I learned a little bit about storytelling at that point. And then my mother's a writer. 
So, uh, you know, she was an editor uh, of, a, of, a, of a magazine. It was a law magazine, actually. So it was a very technical type of thing. But um, so even more sort of scrutiny into being accurate uh, and honest and, and all that other stuff that comes with it. Um, so, you know, I grew up around that. And then, you know, I, I, I didn't really choose that path, though. Um, it actually, I think growing up around it, uh, for me, meant that's what I didn't want to do. Um, so I pursued film and I, you know, I went after that and did that at a movie studio for almost 10 years. But then, you know, I was always taking pictures and that passion of photography just kept developing and developing until, um, you know, I realized that I really needed to, to follow that path. Um, so I started before I started, um, the company I have today, Tandem, which, uh, is all about photography and, and video and filmmaking and all that. Um, I spent, uh, at least I'd say it was about four years full time working as a photojournalist uh, on assignment for different environmental organizations, the Sierra Club, National Park Conservation Association, the Nature Conservancy, um, you know, National Geographic. I did just a ton of different things. And you know, I did a lot in national parks and I got to see uh, parts of the national parks and I really made it my focus to, to look at are protected areas that people don't know about. Um, you know, they know Denali and the road and the mountain, but they didn't know that the National Park Service has a search and rescue team that climbs the mountain looking for climbers every climbing season, risking their lives, um, saving lives. And so, you know, stories like that, um, you know, really were the, the foundation of, of my own process of becoming a storyteller. And then as motion became part of that, uh, I realized you could tell that story in a uh, multi-dimensional way, and now today, you can go see the film in 3D. So <laughs> there's, you know, it just keeps getting more and more uh, multi-dimensional. But um, that, that's the evolution of my uh, of my storytelling background. So Very well summed up because there's a lot of little struggles and things along the way too. <laughs> okay, let's talk about a struggle. Let's talk about we've talked. Actually, about... it's been all easy. I lied about that. <laughs> Yeah, there's no struggles. As a photographer, no, there's no struggles in that industry. <laughs> what was one of the the hardest lessons, life lessons that you had to learn? Uh, one, I'm, one I'm still learning, which is the, the value of a photo. Um, you know, that is something that's always been, I think, evolving. And I remember the first time I heard about the, the uh, devaluing of the photograph would have been from my father because um, he, like many photographers at the time, was looking at stock photography. And I remember this new thing had come out and it was called the CD-ROM. And these CDs could store a hundred photos at a time and could be distributed very affordably and it was going to put every photographer out of business you know and i forget what year this would be i'm sure we can look up when the cd-rom came out but i think it was around the mid 90s maybe early 90s and yeah early 90s i think it would have been and so you know that was the first time i started the year of like oh photography's dead we're we're all gonna not have careers and so on and so forth and um you know i didn't quite really understand what that meant but you know it's that conversation has been replicated time and time again as new business models emerge. Yet, you know, there's a business to be made, but I do think it, it continues to be a struggle as a photographer, um, I think even a creative in general, but especially for photography and for photographers, depending on your genre and especially for nature photographers, there's not this huge wide world waiting to publish, you know, photos of, of, of nature necessarily. I think it can be very hard to make a living, certainly full time. And so that was the reality check I got as I made a transition, especially out of a, a studio gig here in Los Angeles into a nature photography journalism 
uh, path that I really found, um, you know, that there was a lot of challenges uh, with, with, making, with making money. And uh, I think that was probably the hardest lesson um, that, uh, that I found. So how did you go about then launching Tandem? And tell us a little bit more about what it is, because I think it's been closing in on a decade. Uh, yeah, it is. It's closing in on, <laughs> wow, yeah, when did that happen? Um, that's the other challenge. Uh, time flies. <laughs> There's never enough of it. Um, uh, and we built our own software, so that, that was the first step. At the time, it was actually Tandem Stocks. It was built solely for us. And it was built solely for the purpose of just managing a library and merging stills in motion under one platform. Um, but, uh, but the, uh, the company didn't launch, um, to photographers and to clients until, uh, December of 2010. Uh, so it'll be nine years that we opened to the world in December. So it goes really, really fast. It goes really fast, but I'm, I'm proud. And, and the company has really gone through a lot of different evolutions. So, you know, that's been interesting. What's the latest evolution? I mean, you have to evolve, like you said, in this day and age, especially in the creative fields. Well, the latest and greatest, we actually just relaunched our website, which finally actually tells people what it is we do. Because um, <laughs> I think for the last nine years, you know, and especially the last couple of years, we haven't done a great job of saying, oh, this is, uh, you know, this is, this is, this is, um, you know, here's our photography and here's some our library, but here's the books that we're making and here are the films that we're making and here's the partnerships that we've been making and here's the impact we're having. And, you know, I'm one of those people that's so busy doing that I don't, I don't often stop and look back um, at what I'm doing. <laughs> So the company uh, started as a stock photography and licensing company, which we still do today. But then we added a technology platform, which is Tandem Vault, uh, and that was basically built for us. And I realized, well, wow, there's a whole other product here that people can benefit from and manage their own libraries. And so many, many large companies uh, use that platform today to manage their own photos and, and, uh, and motion clips and any file type, actually, now. And then the third piece is is the newest piece. It's not actually all that new. It really started, but it started very, um, very simply, uh, is our motion side, what I call our original content arm, because a lot of photography is created alongside of those uh, videos and films that we're making. And so it started seven years ago with very short little pieces for the environment, you know, things for the Nature Conservancy or uh, national parks uh, organizations that we were working with. And then that has evolved. Um, to, as we've discussed, creating television shows and creating films and IMAX uh, experiences and, and things like that. And, uh, and now we've got, uh, you know, a bunch of editors and, uh, you know, a bunch of new projects in the works. And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm really proud that, you know, and, and the new website finally says that, you know, so it, it finally you can go there and say, oh, wow, what is their film program about? What is their licensing program about? What is the photography and branding opportunities? And, um, you know, we have actually have a news section where we can say like, hey, there's a film opening. Go see it. Uh, what a novel idea. So, um, you know, I started in marketing and somehow in the process of doing, I forgot a little bit about that. Um, so we've really we've really taken the brand and brought it all together as one company. And now that gives us an even bigger platform to share with the world uh, nature through so many different mediums. Like we just released a book. Um, we have a, a publishing partnership. We've been doing books. I think we've done, um, I forget the number, uh, which should say something in itself. I think we've done seven or eight books. Um, our most recent book is called Silent Kingdom. It's all black and white photography from a photographer we represent, Christian Vizel. 
and it's just gorgeous. It's like, it's an art book, but you know, we're using it as a tool and he's using it as a tool for conservation, bringing awareness to the waters that he dives in off the coast of Mexico. And, um, it just won in Paris, uh, yesterday. He just won first prize in nature. The book won second prize for publishing. Um, so we're, you know, those kinds of things we just never shared before. Um, but they are, they are part of the conversation and they're part of the tools that we're using, uh, to make those first connections. Like we first talked about. What do you believe the impact of visual storytelling can be um, on humans connecting to the world? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, I, I think it's, um, one thing I try to avoid doing is measuring impact. I think you can, you can kind of ballpark it and say, well, a movie playing and figure out how many people are coming through. But I think you have to just kind of all, I think we all have to do it and not say, well, it's not enough of an impact. So I'm not going to do it because I, I don't think any, any small contribution shouldn't be dismissed because of its, uh, its lack of impact or lack of measurable impact even. You know, I think we have to just pursue what it is we're doing with our best faith and best intentions and not worry about the measurability of it other than saying this is the best we can do. Because it's the only way I think we're going to get there. Um, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm very, certainly very proud, though, of, of, the, of the efforts that our entire team has led. You know, I mean, that's the one thing I got to really emphasize here. Like, this is not the Ian Shive show, so to speak. It's, you know, there's, there's so many talented people that make this possible in editing, in the field, uh, you know, in administration and, um, you know, research and, and management. I mean, it, it takes a lot of people to do the things that we're doing. Um, on Hidden Pacific alone, I think we estimated there were probably, I think, I forget the exact number, but I think it was almost over 700 people were involved over the, over the different process of creating it because of the 3D animation and all of that kind of stuff. Over 300 people alone were just uh, involved in, in um, converting it. So, you know, there's been an impact. There's also been an economic impact, um, which I think is, is worth talking about because we've helped many photographers become full time. We've helped um, photographers, you know, even just get published or, you know, whatever. Everybody has different goals. Um, but, you know, we've also hired lots of creative folks, musicians, composers, animators, graphic designers, editors, um, you know, and so that impact I'm also very proud of because I've managed to somehow over the evolution of this and, and not thinking too much about it, um, bring art and commerce together, which I think is, is very important in the future of the environment. It has to be, if it's, people are going to take it serious, it has to be economically sustainable too. Because we're not going to be able to go back to the Stone Age if we want to protect the environment. And we may end up back in the Stone Age if we don't protect it. Um, but, you know, I think we have to be realistic that we live in a modern world and there has to be uh, some sort of equilibrium of benefits. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we've always looked at how to best balance that. Um, and I am uh, hopeful that, you know, the films and photography and books and all the things that we're creating continue to, um, you know, sustain artists while simultaneously uh, making new connections with new generation. I'm really glad, Ian, that you brought up that point about sustaining artists. And because there's there's the myth of the starving artist. And mm -hmm. I think that, like you said, your ability to bring commerce and art together is super important. And 
for people to know that that does exist. You will have to work very, very hard, but it does exist. Ian, where can people find everything you and your teams are doing? What are the main hubs that people can go to? Thank you for asking. Uh, always, always glad for people to come check things out, especially at our new site, which I'm very proud of. TandemStillsMotion.com is our new landing page. Uh, so that's T-A-N-D-E-M stillsmotion.com. Uh, um, and then we're on social media at TandemStock. And I'm on Instagram, which is probably one of the best places to stay in touch with, uh, with what I'm up to as well. And that's at Ian Shive Photo. So it's just my name with the word photo at the end of it. So those are the, those are the best places to, to see what we're up to. I just want to say on behalf of eight-year-olds around the world <laughs> and uh, creatives and photographers and just humanity, thank you for everything that you do. And it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for helping me reach everyone. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. And go see Hidden Pacific. Yes, yes. HiddenPacific.com. I forgot that. How did I forget that? See, this is the problem. You need like everything to be in one place. HiddenPacific.com. <laughs> we won't forget. I'm Kenna Klosterman, and you've been listening to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live, edited by Laura Finnerty. Follow all things Ian Shive on TandemStillsMotion.com at Ian Shive Photo on Instagram and find out where Hidden Pacific is playing near you at hiddenpacific.com. At Creative Live, we believe there's a creator and a photographer in all of us. And yes, that means you. If you're looking to get fresh perspectives, inspiration, or skills to boost your hobbies, business, or life, head over to creativelive.com and check out the Creator Pass, our subscription that gives you access to over 1,500 classes taught by the world's top creators and entrepreneurs. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, and more. You can stay up to date with everything happening at Creative Live by following us on social media at Creative Live everywhere. Thank you again to Ian Shive, and I'll see you all next week for another episode of We Are Photographers. <laughs>